Okay, this is the Shir on the book of Yechezkel. We are holding currently in the 12th chapter of Yechezkel, uh, in verse 13. And last week we discussed uh, the first part of the story of King Tzidkiyahu and how Yechezkel has described um, by demonstrating to the people that uh, Tzidkiyahu would escape at night through the tunnels of Yerushalayim as the Babylonians broke into the city. Of course, this is five years from now. This is a prophecy. Um, it can be avoided, but as we know from empirical evidence, it wasn't avoided. Um, and so up to verse 12, uh, Yechezkel has been describing the escape of Tzidkiyahu or the, the method of escape of King Tzidkiyahu the last king of the uh, Davidic dynasty <coughs> that we've had the next one will be the Mashiach he'll be the, the, the next king of Israel but in the meantime we have to t- attend to what happens to Tzidkiyahu after he escapes so God says to Yechezkel, this is chapter 12, verse 13, I will spread my net over him, over the king, and he will be caught in my trap, and I will have him brought to Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans, the Osa Lo uh, he'll be brought there but he won't see the land and we'll understand why in a minute but Shom Yomus and there he will die so that is the projected fate the, the pro- prophetic pro- projected fate of the last king of Israel or the last king of Yehuda King Tzidkiyahu and the Medrash here fills in all the details it's a continuation of the Medrash we were discussing last week it's a Medrash in Eichel and uh, it describes uh, that, uh, that for those that have been to Yushalayim, there is uh, evidence of the tunnel of King Sikiel. You can go and visit it till this very day. Um, he built a tunnel, or he had tunnels built, uh, to, to, to enable himself and his entourage, his royal entourage, which included his wives and his children and his bodyguards, to escape. It was about 18 miles long, according to the Medrash and exited in the plains of Yericho, Jericho, near the city of Yericho itself. And when the Babylonians came into the town, we came into Yerushalayim, uh, one of their uh, main targets was the king himself. Because the king himself, Sibkiyo, was the one that had done the dirty on Nebuchadnezzar. He promised, he made a vow to Nebuchadnezzar that he wouldn't rebel. <coughs> And he'd gone back on that vow, and so he was a primary target for the Babylonians. They couldn't find him because he'd got escaped down his tunnel. And so they started to search the countryside for him. And as the Babylonians were searching for Tzidkiyahu, uh, they weren't sure which direction in which to go. But uh, as they were wandering about the countryside, God, so to speak, gave them a pointer, gave them a direction in which to go and God arranged for a deer to appear on the horizon in sight of the Babylonian soldiers and the Babylonian soldiers 
instead instead of uh, looking for Tzidkiyot, decided to chase the deer and capture it and have it for lunch. Um, but every time they thought they'd caught the deer or they'd cornered the deer or they found a way to uh, ensnare the deer, the deer escaped. It evaded the Babylonians. Uh, and all the time it was running right on, God arranged for it to run right on top of the tunnel that King Tzidkiyot was escaping through. And when King Tzidkiyot and his entourage emerged from the cave, emerged from the tunnel in the plains of Yericho, uh, the Babylonians saw him and they captured him. They captured him and his men. Uh, as Yechezkel foretold here, <coughs> this is the prophecy that uh, projected this event. Uforasti esroshti alov. I will spread my net over him, and he will be caught in my trap, says God. And once caught, they brought Sidkiyot to Nebuchadnezzar in a place called Rivla. Rivla was on the border of what today is Transjordan and modern-day Israel, um, or modern-day state of Israel. Uh, now, under normal circumstances, um, the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, even under the best circumstances, was not a magnanimous winner. Remember, Churchill said, always be magnanimous in victory. Well, uh, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't magnanimous in victory. He wasn't mag- a magnanimous winner. And his, he, his normal modus operandi, when he captured people he didn't like or who had uh, betrayed him, was to immediately execute him. And his approach to conquering other people's lands was to immediately execute the kings and generals of any enemy he defeated. Here, however, Nebuchadnezzar was even more malevolent than normal uh, because he felt personally betrayed by King Tzidkiyahu. Remember that I mentioned last week that the name Tzidkiyahu actually comes from Nebuchadnezzar himself. His name was Matanya. His Hebrew name was Matanya. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar called him Tzidkiyahu because he thought he was a tzaddik because he agreed, he, he made a vow using the name of God uh, never to rebel against him anyway, he captured Tzidkiyahu and because the king had broken his oath um, not to rebel against Babylonian rule um, so he begged King Tzidkiyahu begged Nebuchadnezzar to kill him first because he didn't want to see the death of any, anybody else, particularly his children. Uh, his sons made the same plea to Nebuchadnezzar that they should be killed first. They didn't want to be seen. They didn't want to see their father being executed. And Nebuchadnezzar killed the sons, killed all his children uh, in front of Tzidkiyahu's eyes, and then blinded Tzidkiyahu. And the Tanakh actually recalls uh, it twice. Uh, it recalls it in Malachim, in, in the second book of Kings, in chapter 25, and also in the book of Yeremia, in chapter 39, where we've got these two verses. Uh, the king of Babylon slaughtered Tzidkiyot's sons, in a place called Rivla, right in front of his eyes. That's called Chore Yehuda, and he, he also slaughtered the Chore Yehuda, all the noblemen that were with him, and um, and after that, after Tzidkiyo was made to witness all the, mass- the massacre of his uh, family, uh, or not his wives, but the massacre of his children, and um, uh, his entourage, 
um, he was blinded by Asrehu ban Chushtayim, and they uh, bound him with copper chains, Lovi Oso Bobelo, and they brought him in chains to Babylonia. So the last thing that Sidkiyo ever saw with his eyes was the terrible, horrendous image of his sons being executed. Um, again, serving as yet another confirmation of both Yumiyahu's and Yechezkel's prophecy. Um, the Hevesa, as it says, we learned in verse uh, 13, the, the, verse 13, the verse we've just mentioned today, the verse we started with today, the Hevesi, the Hevesi Osel Bovela, God says, I will have him brought to Babylonia, the Osel Lo Yira, and he will not see it, which uh, he didn't see it, he didn't see Babylonia because he was already blind when he got there, Vesham Yomus, and now he will die, he'll never return to the land of Israel. And uh, that was the story of King Tzidkiyahu as described and prophesied by Yechezkel here in this chapter. Now there is an epilogue to this story um, which Yechezkel does not deal with so I'll just tell you it quickly. The epilogue to the story of King Tzidkiyahu uh, when King Tzidkiyahu was brought to Babylonia blinded and in iron chains uh, the Jews of Babylon were forced to attend the triumphant return, very similar to what the Romans used to do when the Roman general would uh, be victorious in war or a Roman uh, emperor would be victorious in war. They'd have a, a, a parade through the capital city. Um, the Americans adopted this later on with the ticker tape parades that they had for um, the Apollo astronauts and various other heroes of theirs, including the, uh, the pilot, I can't remember his name, who flew, <coughs> who flew across the uh, Atlantic. What was his name? Um, begins with an L. Uh, he had actually turned out to be a Nazi in the end. Lindbergh, Charles Lindbergh. Um, so the Americans adopted the ticker tape parade, but uh, the Babylonians and the Romans were a bit more violent with their parades. And we know, for example, the Romans had a parade through, through Rome with all the Jewish slaves that they brought back and displaying all the uh, artifacts that they brought back from Yerushalayim uh, hence Titus's arch um, by the way there's just mentioned, mentioned Titus's arch so you should know that every year um, there is a Harry, in my book it reads Rishti, not Roshti really? let me just look at the my yeah, Rishti, you're quite right. It's my eyes. Sorry about that. You just have to forgive my eyes. My eyes are not what they were. Um, <clears throat> so, <clears throat> just getting back to... I was just tangentially telling you about what happens at Titus's Arch every year. Who was that? David Barrett. Yeah, you're quite right, Rishti. Uh, at Titus's Arch every year, there's, a, there's a, um, a commemoration, not a commemoration, but a um, ceremony conducted by a group of Hasidim, I don't know who, which, from which sect they are, um, but uh, they gather around Titus's arch every year and they sing Im Eshkochech Yerushalayim. You can actually watch it on YouTube to remind the Romans of who actually won that confrontation between the Jews and the Romans. And nevertheless, this was the uh, tradition in the ancient world uh, to bring back uh, the spoils of war and the victims of your enemies, the your enemies that uh, you conquered and parade them through the streets and as such um, the Jews were required to attend 
they were forced to attend the triumphant return and parade of the successful Babylonian army that had just destroyed Yerushalayim and as required they attended the lavish event and they were forced to wear white clothing which was considered a sign of celebration nevertheless uh, the Medrash says that beneath their white clothes they wore black uh, as a sign of mourning but so ostensibly they were there uh, forcibly there to celebrate with the rest of the Babylonians uh, the conquering the destruction of Yerushalayim and, and the temple um, uh, and they had to behave and join in the street parties and rejoice as good Babylonians they had to wave the Babylonian flag so to speak on the inside however um, they realised that uh, the game was up Yerushalayim was gone 850 years later uh, that was the end of autonomy that was the end of autonomy for the Jewish people until today till uh, the 21st of August uh, 2023 we haven't had autonomy over, over uh, well not till today but until 1948 we haven't had autonomy o- and over uh, Yerushalayim and uh, back to Tzidkiyahu uh, although the blinded, broken Tzidkiyahu was imprisoned for many years his memory was never forgotten by the fellow exiles remember, I remember uh, I discussed with you last week Tzidkiyahu was actually uh, maybe surprisingly a very popular king and he became a focal point or even sort of a mysterious heroic figure uh, in Babylonia uh, maybe even the focus of um, sort of some type of nationalism that was still present among the Jews that were forced to live in Babylonia and they looked upon him as a hero even though in Jewish in, in, as far as Judaism is concerned we don't treat him as a, one bit as a hero um, one might have thought that the Jewish people would have resented him because he had actually failed in his policies and uh, his rebellion was clearly the catalyst by which they were eventually doomed and sent into exile Uh, but this wasn't the attitude of the Jews in Babylon to Sidkiel the Jews in Babylon held that Sidkiel was a righteous man and uh, amazingly enough they didn't blame him for what had happened Uh, maybe similar to how the press treat Joe Biden right? the man that can do no wrong even though you know he doesn't even know how to read off a teleprompter anyway um, they reflected the Jews of Babylonia during the time that Tzidkiyot was in prison they reflected on what had become of them and concluded that they themselves were to blame they didn't blame him they blamed themselves for the dire circumstances they found themselves in which, which we mentioned earlier in Yechazel led to a huge Baltashuba movement in the Babylonian exile something that's one of the strangest things in Jewish history that every time we suffer a, a holocaust or something similar to a holocaust it almost always it does it has always led to a huge Baal movement uh, which is really counterintuitive and they blame themselves they didn't blame Sidkiel um, therefore the general opinion of the Jews in Babylonia was that Sidkiel was not to be viewed as the source of their destruction and exile he was just a merely an actor in a play in which the script was pre-written they recognised that God had made a decision earlier to destroy Yerushalayim and that Tzidkiyot uh, was just an actor playing out his part um, and he wasn't to blame but they were really to blame 
generation after generation of Jews that paid no attention to the prophets they were to blame for their own uh, downfall hence the rebirth of Judaism in uh, Babylonia now Tzidkiel himself did experience one more triumph he outlived Nebuchadnezzar and uh, this Medrash goes on to say that uh, in the name of Chazal that Nebuchadnezzar died on the 25th of Adar and we don't know exactly what year, um, but on the very next day, on the 26th of Adar, his son, Evel Moradoch, um, he's either his son, there's various opinions in the Gemara, the majority opinion is Evel Moradoch was his son, uh, some say it was his nephew, or some say it was his grandson, but the Gemara Megillah is pretty clear that it's his son, so this Evel Moradoch became the king, um, and uh, Evel Moradoch was in prison himself. Now, Nebuchadnezzar in his later years became very um, um, paranoid. Uh, you know what they say about paranoia? Just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get me. And Nebuchadnezzar became paranoid and he became obsessed with the idea that his own son, Evel Moradoch, was trying to overthrow him. So, of course, he put his own son in prison. Uh, which his son didn't uh, appreciate. So, on the day after his death, on the day after Nebuchadnezzar's death, which, uh, again, we say is on the 26th of Adar, exactly what year we don't know, Evel Moradoch was removed from prison and crowned king. And he, the first thing he did as king was remove the body of Nebuchadnezzar, his father, from its grave and dragged it through the streets of Babylon, Babylon the capital city. Um, and uh, the Medrash says that Evel Moradoch did this uh, because Nebuchadnezzar had imprisoned him, and Evel Moradoch wanted his revenge. And uh, this was, a, you know, the nature of, uh, <laughs> of the pagans two and a half thousand years ago. You want your revenge, so take him out of his grave and drag him through the streets. And... Um, <coughs> And uh, according to Chazal, um, uh, Errol Moradoch was in a prison cell with King Yechonia, who was the original king of Yehuda before uh, Tzidkiyahu. Um, and when he was, when when Errol Moradoch became king, um, he overturned many of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, decrees. Uh, and one of the decrees that he overturned uh, was to, to free King Tzidkiyahu from prison, which he did the day after he was crowned. Nebuchadnezzar died on the 25th of Adar, he was crowned on the 26th of Adar, and on the 27th of Adar, King Tzidkiyahu was freed from prison, um, but uh, that was the last triumph King Tzidkiyahu had. He died within a month of, re of his release, um, the Medra seems to imply he died of a broken heart. Um, he just stayed long enough, stayed alive long enough to outlive his own tormentor. And when Nebuchadnezzar died, he felt the time had come for him to die as well, and he sort of, so, so to speak, gave up. Now, Evel Moradoch was completely different from his, again, very, very different character from Nebuchadnezzar, although he was a master tactician and a master logician, uh, and he was a philosopher emperor, um, he had nothing against the Jews per se, <coughs> he instituted legislation 
into Babylonian law that allowed Jewish people living in Babylon to be treated as the same as any other Babylonian citizen, which is why Babylonia became the centre, started at that time, to become the centre of Jewish learning and would be the centre of Jewish learning uh, for the next uh, 1300 years. And he was very good to the Jews. And he gave them autonomy in their own towns. They had towns like Mechuzah, eventually Mechuzah, Pompadisa, Nahardoya, um, and Sura. These were all Jewish towns. Uh, Mesa These were all Jewish towns where they, the councils were Jewish. You know, like Golders Green and uh, Hendon and, uh, you know, Williamsburg and places like that. And um, uh, in, in South Africa... You've got similar places in Johannesburg, uh, which is, you know, almost totally Jewish. And uh, he, he was very good to the Jews. Uh, and his son as well, Belshazzar, so he wasn't terrible to the Jews either. Um, and um, it, it, almost until our day, there were markets in Babylonia, which is modern-day Iraq, near the city of Baghdad, um, that claimed to be the tombs of the two kings of Yehuda who died there. Remember, two kings of Yehuda died there. Yehonia died there. And also King Sidkio died there. Um, we don't know where they are now. Um, early on, there's actually pictures of the graves from the early, early part of the 20th century. Um, but now they're, they're completely, they've been completely destroyed. But we know they were buried there somewhere near Babylon, ancient Babylon. Uh, the city of ancient Babylon, and you, we have the tombs of the two, the last two kings of Yehuda, uh, Yehonia, Yehonyol, um, and uh, King Tzidkiel. Uh, and again, today no traces of the graves exist. Um, it could be because we forgot, the, Jew, the Jews of Baghdad forgot their location. Uh, it could be because the Ottomans destroyed the grave sites. No one really knows, but we don't know where they are. Nevertheless, uh, the tradition of visiting the graves of these two kings was recorded as a custom uh, in the Babylonian Jewish community for centuries. I mean, we're talking about 2000, we're talking about 400 uh, BCE, and there are, we have records of people visiting these graves on a yearly basis, the graves of the last two kings of Yehuda, for a thousand years, once a year or twice a year on, on the days of uh, their York sites probably, I don't know I don't know that much about it but there were particular days in the year where Jude, the Babylonian Jews would visit the graves of King Yehonia and King uh, Tzidkiel um, uh, whatever the, whatever the case King Yehonia and King Tzidkiel never returned to Israel they were buried in the land of their captors um, and although there would no, be no kings uh, or there would be kings, but no kings from the house of David in the second base, uh, uh, base of Migdashiri in the second temple period. Um, there were kings, there was Herod, there was various leaders, but there was no kings from the house of David, so, or from the line, even from the line of David. Uh, that made Sidkio, as I just mentioned, the last king of the house of David. The next one on the throne will be the Mashiach, Mashiach ben David, um, who has to come through the line of Zerubovel, Shlomo HaMelech, and David, ultimately David HaMelech. Um, finally, on this verse, on the story of Sidkiel's fate, it's not coincidental that God com God's complaint 
against the Jewish people from the beginning of this chapter is this. If you look back in verse 2, uh, the major complaint in this chapter is that the Jewish people, they've got eyes to see but they don't see. They choose not to see. They choose not to recognise what's going on around them. And of course we know throughout the chapter God emphasises this complaint and he mentions the word in front of their eyes. They don't see what's going on in front of their eyes. He mentions it, God mentions it seven times in five verses. And we discussed this, it means you, Yechezkel, you'll have to demonstrate what's going to happen to the Jews of Yehuda and Yerushalayim, you've got to do it right in front of their eyes, so that they can actually see their own dark future. Um, and at the very least, maybe that will get them to do something about the, uh, the, the situation they just failed to open their eyes to see, and maybe they can mitigate or minimise the fate that awaits them. But uh, as we know, under Tzidkiyo's poor leadership, they failed to pay any attention to the imagery that Yechezkel provided. And it's no coincidence then that Tzidkiyo's ultimate fate was that the last thing he ever saw was the slaughter of his children. Immediately he was blinded after that, so that he could no longer see what was happening to his own people. Let Ainahem in front of the in front of like in front of his own eyes. And the dark truth is that God is demonstrating to Sidkio is that if you're not prepared to look carefully at the spiralling decline of your city and the people you're responsible for and try to correct it, then you don't deserve to see anything at all. And that's the opinion of the majority of the of the um, commentators here that uh, the blinding of Sidkio is midikineged midah. He refused to open his eyes to the situation in Yerushalayim. And therefore God says, well, if you, if, you, <laughs> if you can't be bothered to see what's going on around you, you don't need your eyes anymore. And um, so that is, that is the dark end of King Sidkio, and predicted here by, by uh, Yechezkel, five years before it happened. Now, of course, it could have been all prevented, right? Uh, a negative prophecy can be prevented by Teshuva, a negative prophecy can be prevented by te- Tefillah. We've moved into Elul now, so you can say the three magic words. Um, repentance, prayer, and charity. It can get rid of any type of gezerah, even a pro- prophetic decree can be set aside. But of course, King Sidkio didn't do it, and we are left with a prophecy that fulfilled itself. Now, what does the story, this horrific story, which I've described to you, which is, I mean, I, I gave you the, the, you know, I really gave you the basics of these med- Midrashim, um, the Psikta Rabosi and the Medrash and Eichar. You can read it for yourself. It's very, very long and very descriptive and very dark and very, you know, pulling no punches, right? The Gemara and the Midrashim that we have, they, they're, they're not, you know, we don't... They, the Midrashim and the Gemaras uh, don't believe in cancel culture. That uh, you're not allowed to say things that will upset people. Um, they're very graphic, these Midrashim. Uh, and I sort of tried to sanitise it a little bit uh, when I paraphrased it. But the question still remains, what does the story of the horrific fate of King Sidkiyahu mean for us? Like, this is a, this is a, a prophecy, one of the great prophecies of, of Yechezkel, uh, and he wouldn't be here unless it had a message, an ultimate message for everybody. 
in all generations. No prophecy has been printed in the is, is was printed in the Tanakh or included in the canon of, of the Tanakh without it having any bearing on all generations. So what are we to what are we to make of the the downfall and the dark fate of King Sidkio? Um, so there are various opinions here, and I'm I'm going to deal with a, a, a very, very interesting Rambam in Hilchas Tarnis and the Laws of Tarnis, but just before that, uh, just an introduction. Um, as I said, we're in the month of Elul, so it's a month of reflection. So we know that uh, the, the nature of the human being is you have good days and you have bad days, and you have days when you're on top of the world, and you have days when you're down in the dumps, uh, everything is uh, troughs and uh, peaks and troughs, that's what life's all about and unfortunately we get sick and we get better and we suffer and we rejoice and we, we make weddings and we go to funerals and the whole thing is a mixture of uh, you know ups and downs but when something unfortunate happens to a person in his life as this chapter remember this is what this chapter is about Something that happens to you, in front of your eyes. What is a person expected to do? Something, something tragic happens, something unfortunate happens, there's a death, there's a disease, there's something bad happens to a person, either to him, him personally, her personally, family, bereavement, whatever it is. What's he expected to do? What, what's God's expectation of a person? So, the expectation from the perspective of Judaism is a person that is expected to, to daven, first of all, to appeal to God. God expects you to appeal. Uh, you're given the opportunity three times a day. The tefillah is the Shemona Esra. It's the only tefillah you've got. It comes from the language of pilel, lehis palel. The language of pilel. Pilel means to concentrate. It's supposed to concentrate. You've got a chance to speak to God. God expects it. He wants you to chat with him. And he also expects you to do teshuva. Um, because for some reason, some, for some reason, and it's never coincidental, for some reason something bad has happened. But what happens if a person just doesn't react to the hardships he's going through? He doesn't doubt. He pays no attention to it. He doesn't do teshuva. Maybe he puts his hardships down to circumstances, coincidence, bad luck, happenstance. That's just the way life is. Whatever his reason, he chooses to ignore the suffering he is going through and makes no appeal to God for help. He makes no appeal to God for a remedy. He makes no appeal to God for an alleviation of grief. Now, alleviation of grief is the greatest gift God gave to the human, human being. The ability to forget grief. Because if, if uh, you know, when your father dies, your mother dies, and you have a bereavement, and that feeling that you feel at that moment doesn't dissipate, you'll be on the verge of suicide for the rest of your life. One of the great gifts that God has given to mankind is that he forgets the grief, or he can set it aside. Uh, he, God allows for the alleviation of grief. Uh, but once of a person, you know, he doesn't ask God for that. He doesn't want God's help. He doesn't want a remedy from God. He doesn't want God to get involved in his personal sorrow. How do you describe such a person? So, some would describe him as, you know, you know, if you wanted to be kind, you'd say he was apathetic. 
Um, others would say, you know, the guy's in denial. Some would, if you want to be harsher, you'd say he's an Epicurus. Um, but from the perspective of Judaism, there's so, clearly something wrong. If, he, if he's a, a believing Jew, then his first port of call should be God. That's what God wants. That's what God expects. Uh, the last port of call. When you, you know, the old expression from the First World War, you know, there's no atheist in the foxhole. Right? So, um, uh, even the atheists will, you know, when they're drowning in the river, they'll, they'll grab onto a, a floating branch for help. So, um, what is, what, what, what's going on with a person, supposedly a believing person, that doesn't want God's help? What, what, how will you describe this person? And this is where we come across the most amazing uh, Rambam, uh, which people have struggled to explain for a long time. Um, it's been addressed by many, many uh, commentators. It's the Rambam, the laws of Tainis, uh, the laws of fasting. It's in the first chapter of the laws of fasting. And it's the third, the third halacha. Now, just bear in mind that uh, the Rambam believes that uh, his opening remarks about fasting, he says, if you're fasting because your desire is to punish yourself, um, then you're in the wrong religion. That's not what Tainus is. Even the Tainus, even the fast day that's coming up, Yom Kippur, it says, V'inisem asnacho seichem, irresponsibly translated by Art Scroll, Koran, and all the other translators, as you shall afflict your souls, it means no such thing. means no such thing. Fasting for 24 hours, you're not afflicting yourself. You might be uncomfortable. <laughs> you might be uncomfortable for, for 24 hours because you can't eat. And you might be uncomfortable for 25 hours because you can't sleep with your wife. And you might be uncomfortable because you can't take a bath, but you're not afflicting yourself. If you were told to fast for six days, then you'd be afflicting yourself. Fasting for one day is not an affliction. The, the correct translation of the Inisimus Nafsho Seichem, when the Torah is describing Yom Kippur, is you should bow down to your own poverty, from the language of Oni. And Oni, that's where the word Inisem comes from, the language of Oni. Somebody that doesn't have anything. You've got nothing going for you. And that's why you're supposed to wear a kittle. And that's why you, you, you know, you, 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 you look at yourself as if you're nothing. Just the dust of the ground. And that's the language of Inis and And that's what the Ramam says in his introduction to the laws of Tainus. He says very clearly that if you think the idea of a fast in Judaism is to afflict yourself and to punish yourself and to you know, like the uh, Shiites do, they bang themselves on the head with that wooden board, then you're in the wrong religion. Or like the Christians do, uh, whip themselves. You're in the wrong religion. Uh, a past day is a day of contemplation and focus on your own lack of focus. You're supposed to focus on your own lack of focus. And you're supposed to focus on your weaknesses, on the things that you're doing wrong. And contemplate God, and how big God is compared to you. And uh, humble yourself in front of God. Be an Oni. Be a pauper. And as a re- that's why when the Rambam writes in the third Mishnah, in the third Halacha here, 
in the laws of kindness, in the laws of fasting, he writes a very strange thing. Just a reminder, I asked you, um, what should a person do? What, how would you describe a person who's suffering, a, re- a believing Jew, a person who's suffering, and uh, he doesn't want God's help? He doesn't appeal to God, he doesn't have him, doesn't do teshuva, doesn't do anything. How would you describe such a person? So, listen to what the Rambam says. He says, should, this is the Rambam, Hilchas Tainis, Perik Aleph, Halacha Gimel. Should people fail to cry out to God in prayer and repentance, in times of suffering and pain, and instead say, what has happened to me, or was, what has happened to us, is merely a natural phenomenon, and this difficulty that, me, that I, or we, are experienced, is merely a chance occurrence, this is the cruel conception of a cruel person. Now, the Rambam actually uses the word achzari, which means cruel, to describe this person. Cruel. Now, you wouldn't have described this person as cruel. You, we, we, we said before, you'd maybe describe him as apathetic, a man that's in denial, a man that's an idiot, a man that's maybe a bisal epicurus. But to describe him as cruel, and the Rambam doubles down, he said, yes, cruel, achzari. And the Rambam continues, he says, this attitude causes them to remain attached to their wicked deed. Thus in time, unaddressed and unalleviated, distress will often lead to further suffering. So everybody wants to know why the Rambam uses this strange expression as achzari, a person who fails when he's suffering to appeal to God, to do teshuva, Teshuva, Tefillah, Tzedakah I, mentioned, I forgot to mention Tzedakah which obviously is uh, one of the three major weapons that we have in our arsenal uh, to alleviate suffering on ourselves uh, the Ramam says anyone that doesn't uh, take, make use of these three things these three weapons he's got Teshuva, Tefillah and Tzedakah is Achzari, he's a cruel person um, now normally we, def- we uh, in in English, certainly, we associate, we define cruelty as a person who takes pleasure in inflicting suffering on others, whether it's mental uh, suffering or physical suffering, and uh, we certainly wouldn't apply it in this case. Who's, who's he being cruel to? So there are two answers, two, there are more than two, but there are two answers, major answers to this question of what the Rambam means when he describes a man who ignores his own suffering and refuses to appeal to God either through teshuva, tefillah, or tzedakah, as cruelty, as a cruel person. And both answers are extremely relevant to us in the 21st century. So, I'm going to give you the opinion of Rabbi Shimshon David Pincus, who was a rabbi of Ofakim in Israel. Um, and he offers a very deep understanding here, and he says as follows. He says, what the Rambam is saying is like this. One who believes that his suffering occurs by chance is actually accusing God of cruelty. He is suggesting that God created us but then abandoned us to circumstances, coincidence and bad luck. The nature of a human being, unfortunately, is that one generally sees in others the faults that he himself has. Consequently, one who would wrongly attribute cruelty to God must himself be cruel. It is always easier to blame God for our woes than it is to blame ourselves, which is a very, very deep thought. And uh, very often, that's, you'll hear people blaming God. 
blaming God for their own, you know, their own their own shortcomings. And uh, basically, what you're doing is you're you're accusing God of being cruel. And if you're accusing God of being cruel, then by the very nature of you being created, but Salam Alakim, you're cruel yourself. You're a cruel person. So that's the opinion of Rav Shimon David Pincus. Very interesting. It's a long piece, but I just um, I wanted to just mention it to you. But it's the second opinion, um, the second answer hits home in the context of our story here with King Tzidkiyahu. And this is the this 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 answer is brought down by many commentators uh, commentating on the Rambam and said and they say like this: What the Rambam is saying is that a person who fails to dab a person who fails to do teshuva when he's in time of suffering, him or members of his family or people in his immediate circle, uh, is being cruel to himself because by doing nothing, as Tzidkiyahu did nothing to stem the, tr- the tide of what was going on in Yerushalayim. If you remember, we discussed it last week, discussed it last week. Uh, he knew uh, the paganism that was going on in Yerushalayim. He knew the sexual immorality that was going on in Yerushalayim, but he turned a blind eye to it. He did nothing to stem the tide. And anyone, anyone that does that, who's got the ability to do something about it, either to daven or do teshuva or take action, as Sidkiyahu had to do, had had the ability to do. After all, he was the king. He was a very popular king. Is being cruel because the reason why he's being cruel is because by not appealing to God, by not getting teshuva to fill a tzedakah, by not davening, by not getting himself to do teshuva, or getting the other people to do teshuva, what he's doing is he's bringing additional suffering upon himself, um, as we clearly see with the unfortunate demise of King Tzidkiyahu, and he, of course, by, where, by extension, he's actually being cruel to his own people. Because by not pointing out their mis- mistakes, by not pointing out and cracking down on what was going on in Yerushalayim and letting them get on with it, he was actually bringing on additional suffering not only to himself, but to them as well. Whereas, whereas it, the reality was, he had the power in his hand. He could see what was going on. He had the power in his hand to appeal to God. He had the power in his hand to put his foot down and he failed to do so. And that's why, says, the, says the, these commentators, based on the story of King Sidkiyahu, that's why the Rambam describes a person who's like that, who does nothing when he sees something going on around him, and suffer, he, he's suffering, people around him are suffering, people he's responsible are suffering, uh, he's got to do something about it. And if he doesn't, he's a cruel man, because all he's doing is inviting further suffering. And... Uh, uh, as my Rabbi says, when God taps us on the shoulder with a degree of suffering, we're expected to react to it, to daven, to do teshuva, or to give tzedakah. If we fail to restart, respond, God's going to tap us a little harder. Now the reality is, we don't want him to do it, and he doesn't want to do it either. But this is the divine way that God encourages us to turn to him, and to return to him. So, there's two parts to this. There's turning to God and returning to God. You turn to God through tefillah, through davening. You return to God through teshuva. And you demonstrate 
you're turning to God and you're returning to God via tzedakah by holding every other Jew not even Jews, just people in general doing tzedakah, doing good deeds for other people shows that you have turned to God because you understand that everything you've got has come from God and therefore whatever you give away to somebody else God will return to you and you've shown that you've returned to him because the greatest thing that God is or what God does is tzedakah he, he, he's a, a free gift machine God needs nothing and gives everything so this is, this is the, the explanation of this famous Rambam and we see it playing out in front of our eyes with this prophecy of uh, Yechezkel in relation to Tzidkiyahu's fate that uh, by doing nothing you're just inviting another tap on the shoulder and again uh, just to emphasize, God doesn't want to do that. And certainly we don't want God to do that. So that's why, of course, uh, bringing it up to, you know, up to date, we're just starting Elul. That's why Elul is so important. That's why Rosh Hashanah is so important. That's why the Aserah made Teshuva is so important. The reality is, you should have done Teshuva by the time you get to Rosh Hashanah. Right? If you read the Ramchal, he's very clear on that. But it, it's... Um, even though it's the Aseris you made to Shuva, it's, the, it's not the Aseris, the ten days of repentance, it's the ten days you have already repented. It's the ten days you're already in repentance. The actual repentance, the actual Teshuva should take place during Elul. So that when you get to Rosh Hashanah, you're already, you're already about Teshuva already. So you, when you get into the Aseris you made to Shuva, which is the ten days starting first day Rosh Hashanah, finishing Yom Kippur, those are ten days when you're already a, a, about to shuva nick already. You don't want to leave it too late and start the Teshuvah process, you know, on Rosh Hashanah. The Teshuvah process should, should start at the beginning of Elul, so by the time you get to Rosh Hashanah, you're already, you know, you're, you're already in the, high up on the list of uh, good eggs, so to speak. Anyway, that's the fate of King Tzidkiyahu, described in verse 13, and, and how it really affects us today. We can look at the story of King Tzidkiyahu and learn tremendous lessons about how we are supposed to behave when, when not when so much when, you know, uh, we don't, not inviting tragedy, but unfortunately life is life, and uh, tragedy does strike, suffering does strike, and uh, life is not always a bowl of cherries. Uh, sometimes you've got to deal with the pits as well. Um, now on to verse 14 and verse 14 deals with the fate of Tzidkiyahu's officers now what happened to Tzidkiyahu's officers so God says makes court, short shrift of them Ezra and those around him his aides and all his officers now the, uh, the aides the, I'll, I'll, re, I'll, I'll translate this verse slightly differently the Cholashes of Yivosov Ezro, all those around him, his aides, that's like his civil aides, like his, you know, his ministers. The Chol Agapov, and all his military officers, Agapov is the language of uh, military officers, Azorel Chol Ruach, I will scatter in every direction, the Cherev Orekacharehem, and I, God, will draw a sword chasing after them. Now, it's well known um, that uh, there were many, 
many who escaped, many uh, military officers who downed their, their swords, um, those who weren't uh, with Sidkiyo's entourage, or those who were on Sidkiyo's entourage, one or two of them escaped, but quite a few of the military leaders of Yushalayim managed to escape as well. What God is saying here, that really no one's going to escape here. No one of any importance, no decision maker is actually going to escape. Um, and similar to Tzidkiyahu, his fate was sealed when he left Yerushalayim with the story with the deer. The Babylonians got him. It took a little while for them to get him. And it's going to take a little while for God, so to speak, to round up all the other leaders, all the other military and civil leaders of Yerushalayim and Yehuda and the king, but eventually they'll all be wound up, as we'll see. And again, uh, the Midrashim and the Gemaras here are very, very clear what happened. Um, again, these are uh, Agadic stories, but uh, they're not Agadic in the sense that the stories make no sense. That You have to actually have... Wait, there, there are many Agadic stories in the Gemara, Midrashic sources, uh, in the Gemara and outside the Gemara where you actually have to really dig deep to try and find meaning to them. These, these Midrashim actually are telling you the story, the, uh, the actual facts. So, after prophesying about the killing, about the assassination of King um, Sidkiyahu's sons and the blinding of the king by Nebuchadnezzar and his imprisonment in Babylonia, Yechezkel here turns his attention to the aftermath of the destruction of Yerushalayim and the base of Middosh, the temple, and what was to happen to all the other leaders of Yehuda, both civil, which are called Ezra, his aides, the aides, the, the civil aides, the minister, ministers, and the Agapov, the military leaders, the military officers, um, and all those who followed uh, his advice, all those that followed Sidkiyo's advice. No one questioned Sidkiyo. And that's another factor that we haven't dealt with yet, which we will deal with in a much later chapter, is the fact that none of King Tzidkiyo's uh, advisors actually said to him, listen, uh, your majesty, don't you think it might be a good idea if, you know, the Babylonians are on their way here, don't you think it might be a good idea if we all went to Shul and Davened, or you encouraged the people not to have an orgy tonight to the Baal? Um, nobody, nobody offered that advice. And that's something we discussed earlier. And we'll just, the, the, the book of Yechezkel will discuss it later in chapter 30 I think it is um, but what happened to these people so again we, we, just going back to the history books after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the first temple he left the Babylonian garrison, garrison in Yehuda in the country of Yehuda under the control of Gedaliah who we all know Gedaliah ben Achikam he formed a new civilian government under the direction of the Babylonians in a place called Mitzpet. Um, and, um, um, and um, they, they were uh, a puppet government. Gedalia was really a religious Jewish man, but he took orders from the Babylonian garrison um, that was in uh, Yehuda. And, as I said, the new civilian government was in a place called Mitzpeh. Uh, and when senior army officers, uh, Yochanan ben Korach and his brother, uh, Yonatan ben Korach, they were two of the, the uh, military leaders of uh, generals in the army of um, 
King Tzidkiyahu and the, the other generals were called um, Soria ben, ben Tanchumes, Uvnei uh, Efi, and Azanyaya ben Hamachas. These people you've not heard of. Uh, there were five generals. Uh, when they heard about this new government, they went with their men to Gedalia in Mitzpeh, and Gedalia swore that they, they gave themselves up. They were also on the run, these five generals. The leader of them was the chief of staff of the of um, Sidkiyahu's army, an individual called, he's the man that we're going to be dealing with in, in greater detail here, a guy called Yochanan ben Korach. Now, you'd think it'd be very strange. Um, it, it, in fact, I'm going to complete the story, please God, next week. Because um, we haven't got time to get through it now. You'd, you'd think it's very strange that uh, a Jewish man would be called Korach, right? Like, why, why are you been calling your son Korach? Or calling, calling you know, why, why, why do you call him Korach? So it's a very interesting thing that uh, one of the things that the Jewish people have had through the ages is they call their children very strange names. Like, um, you know, even to the extent that you know you live in England and you, you're from Jewish people called Paul. Like, for goodness sake, calling your son Paul. Paul was the founder of, um, founder of the church, founder of uh, the pagan side of Christianity. And uh, if you live in Israel, you'll see, you'll see um, there was a, we had a story here in Anana. Somebody rang me up to ask a Pesach Alocha, a Moel. He went to, to he, he was uh, asked to uh, do a bris milah. And the, the parents, the Jewish Israeli parents, wanted to call the child Nimrod. And is he allowed to call the child Nimrod? He, can, he, can he say the name Nimrod? So I said, not under any circumstances. It's completely off the cheek, name your child Nimrod. And there's, uh, you, go, you go through the phone book here in Israel, and there's women called Hagar. You know, like, where, where, where the Jewish, you know, I mean, where does it all come from? And you look in the Gemara, and you'll see Rabbi Ishmael. You know, Rabbi Ishmael. So there's a few of them. Not just one. Baruch, where do we, have you got any children called Yishmael? Did you kill any, call any children Yishmael? So, where do these names come from? So, you've got this Korach character here. Yochanan, Yochanan ben Korach. So, uh, what we'll do is, I think we'll, we'll stop there and uh, we'll deal with verse 14. It's a very, very interesting story that goes with this verse about what happened here after the destruction of the temple and the interaction here between the former chiefs of staff, particularly this Yochanan ben Korach and the other generals and now they're about to give themselves up on the basis that uh, they, they, uh, they want, um, so to speak, you know what that is, they want immunity from prosecution from the Babylonians. They're prepared to give themselves up if they get immunity from prosecution. Like, like America, right? Like Hunter Biden. So he's prepared to plead guilty as long as he didn't have to go to prison. So, um, so these generals, these generals are, are prepared to give themselves up uh, as long as they don't get uh, into any trouble. And, and that's why we'll, we'll pick up Mitzvah Shem next Monday. We'll pick up the story in verse 40. So it, unless anyone's got, we've got a couple of minutes and someone's got any questions, now's the time to ask. Uh, if not, we'll suspend and we'll continue with this story. This, uh, it's like a prophecy and the story. Yechezkel doesn't give you all the facts, so we have to 
we have to go to the Midrashim and to various other parts of Tanakh to find out exactly what happened. But uh, we'll finish this story next week and then we'll move on to another bit of a gather as well. Anybody got any questions? If not, we'll call it a day uh, and I've stolen a minute of your time. Yeah. Alright, no problem. I'll do that next week. And um, again, we'll pick up we'll pick up um, from verse 14, please God, next week. I hope you enjoyed the Shia. Um, it's great to have Rob back. Rob's been, Rob's been away uh, on the high seas. Pirate. Rob the pirate. And um, great to see him back. Um, everybody should have a great week. Some of you I'll see tonight. Some of you I'll see tomorrow. Uh, some of you I'll see tonight and tomorrow. Some of you I'll see tonight, tomorrow and Wednesday. Uh, can't get enough of me. I know, popular chap. Uh, I, I, the only person I wish I was popular with was my wife. Um, have to work on that. Nevertheless, have a great night. Have a great week. Colts up to everybody. See you soon. Colts up. Bye. And please God. Bye bye.